Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. My name's Eric. If you haven't met me, I'd love to meet you or help you uh, get connected to our church. Uh, I want to welcome our friends and family online. We'd love to give you a gift in the courtyard or help you connect by uh, filling out the QR code in front of you. Hit I'm new and uh, we'll help you get connected to our church. Uh, also, want to let you know that uh, Sunday school has started this week, but connection classes for junior high, high school, and adults will start next week. And so, you know, it's our prayer that, you know, you would come on Sunday mornings, but also get connected in some way to a community through a Bible study, through a life group, or a connection class where you're around other people talking about God's Word. And so, you can just pray about that and see. We have lots of options on the website. Uh, just to make sure that you're doing life with other Christians and, and growing in your faith. Uh, tonight at 7 o'clock out in the grass, we're going to have an Ascribe to the Lord night. It's a night of worship where we come and sing, bring your blankets, while fire, and just a time of worshiping God together as we reflect back on the book of Romans. And then just mark your calendar for this, February 5th. Uh, Pastor Scott Aravandis will be here at our church going through family discipleship. Um, it'll be good for any type of parent that's going through hard conversations with kids, um, conversations with adult kids, um, and how do you lead your family in discipleship. So that'll be February 5th at 8 a.m. to noon, and so uh, we just uh, invite you to that. So here we go. You guys excited? The end of Romans? Yeah? It's only going to take us three hours to get through the recap, right? And we're going to get this. And that's my favorite thing about the second service. We have no end point, right? We can just go forever. And uh, Romans 16, um, I would just encourage you that, you know, when you get towards the end of a book or sometimes the beginning, it's either the introduction or the final greeting. There's all these verses that kind of get um, swept over or passed and we think they don't have meaning. Um, I don't have time to walk through all of them, about 16 verses here, but it would just be my prayer that you'd be encouraged and, and read through this and see that the behind the scenes look that Paul really worked with lots of people for the gospel to go out um, to the nations to strengthen believers in their church, to help people of need. Um, and that the, the way it worked then is the way it worked now. It was God's people coming together um, to grow in their faith and to share it with people who didn't have it. And, and so that would just be my prayer as we look through this. You would see like, wow, we're looking at um, the, the church then coming together as the way we come together now. And so I'm just going to pray and then we'll hop into Romans 16. Uh, dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that it teaches us that it is, uh, I believe it says it never comes back void. It is always good and profitable uh, for instruction, for teaching, and rebuking, and admonishing. So it's our prayer that your word would just grab our hearts, that we would have Romans imprinted on our minds, uh, that we would use it as a tool to help wrestle through some of our current modern day issues. Um, that we would rest in your sovereignty and we would rest uh, knowing that you're the perfect father, that you're the potter, that we're the clay and we can trust you. And so we pray for your words and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so two things in the behind the scenes. You have all of the kind of theology that's gotten to this, as well as maybe some new people that are a part of helping Paul in his mission. So just some things we've seen in Romans, just as a reminder um, for you to look back or you haven't been through the series is it goes through a lot of topics. And I really think you can use Romans to answer almost any question. You know, he gets from um, creation to how God has revealed himself to, you know, marriage between a man and a woman to the judgment of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God. God gives the moral law, the righteousness of God. 
God keeps his promise to the Jew, to the Gentile. Um, you know, we need to be ready upon Christ's return, uh, that we need to, you know, pray for our governing officials. We need to love the weaker brother. We need to be united together. And so all of those things are great to remember uh, in the book of Romans. And it'd be my prayer that this wouldn't just be some book you went through, you know, six months ago. It'd be a tool that, that's popping in your mind as you're engaging with the culture, saying this is what God's word says about that. This is what his word says about that. So I don't think it was on accident that God put us in Romans right now. Okay? So here we go. Let's work, look through this. And hopefully what you're going to see in these first 16 verses is that God really sticks to his word. When you read in 1 Corinthians that the body of Christ works together, that you have pinkies and fingers and arms and feet, is that's really how it works, is there's all kinds of people being used uh, in this passage. There's rich people, there's poor people, there's males, there's females, there's Gentiles, there's Jews, and they, they all play a part in the gospel going out. They, um, some of them would carry the letter from where Paul was to that church. Some of them would do conflict resolution. Some of them would help raise money. Some of them would host a church. Some of them would host missionaries and Christians. Uh, some of them would help gather the Christians together so they could you know, talk or worship or hear God's word preached. So you see all of these people working together. And one of the cool things I like to try to do sometimes, I'm a little nerdy, so you guys can geek out with me for a second, is that sometimes the Bible, it'll mention something and we get to actually physically see it. And that's just one of those cool things that I hope it strengthens your faith and affirms your faith. But this is one of those just crazy parts. When you look in verse 23, he says that he... Erastus greets you, the city treasurer. Well, guess what? Like he's a real guy in a real city and we can know that. His name is here on a picture. You guys read Greek, right? And that's in Corinth. That's actually there. And his name is listed because he was a public official. He was the city treasurer. So this is a real guy, lived in a real place that really was a part of, of Paul spreading the gospel. He was an everyday guy who had a job for the city. That's fascinating, isn't it? On some level, I mean, this is cool. And, and this is, we're just scratching the surface. The reason I do that is be encouraged. They're finding more and more archaeology that's showing the historicity of the Bible, right? Just all of it says, like, oh, that town doesn't exist. And then they do a dig, and guess what? It exists. And like, oh my gosh, the Bible's right. Okay? So this is one of those instances where that guy is there. And so uh, in the same way, this would be my prayer, is that as you see all these people working together, you would think through, like, if they were to write a letter today, where would your name be? And what would it be a part of? Would it be the one who's helping teach kids Sunday school? Would it be the one who's a greeter, an usher, a host, someone who's helping the poor, who's helping the sick? Would it be a teacher, a small group leader, an elder? You know, where would your name be in it? Because what you're going to see over and over with Paul is there's going to be a group of people working together that have different functions, different authority, but they have equal value. They all matter in, in the, the whole of God's mission to reach the nations. They play a part. And my hope is that you would be encouraged that you play a part as well. You know, and, and at our church, we have a lot going on behind the scenes. This doesn't just happen on accident. You know, we have janitors and administrators and we have volunteers, greeters and ushers and we have leadership teams for missions and worship and children and youth. That, that all these people come together to help Christ be known and to help him be shared with anyone and everyone. And so it'd be our heart that you just 
pray through that this year. How can you be a part of the behind the scenes or, or part of leading the scene, wherever you, know, you think God's um, calling you? But just to see like literally everyone plays a role, whether you have um, maybe a colored past, whether you have a lot of money or no money, you're highly educated, you're not educated, whatever it is, God has a role for you uh, in his kingdom. That's encouraging, isn't it? That you get to partake it, that God's equipped you and gifted you in a way. And here's just a small glimpse of all the people Paul interacts with. And, and they all serve a purpose. And, and they all become a part of us getting this text. I think that's awesome. So that would be my encouragement uh, for our church, just to pray through that. Okay, so now we're going to hop into verse 17. Okay, we're going to camp out on 17 through 23 here for a little bit. And his instruction here is, I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And he says, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And so essentially you have, hey guys, don't be deceived. And so what you have is Paul ending his letter. And he's like, I've written you all this doctrine. It's so important. But there's going to be people that try to smooth talk you, that try to flatter you, and they're going to try to contradict the doctrine that I have taught you. Now, why is this scary? This is scary because I really think he's addressing there's going to be people that in the name of Jesus are going to teach contrary to what I have taught you. And you can't be naive. And you need to watch out. You need to look. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a couple principles. I can't walk through all of them. I can't walk through a lot of passages, but just to give you a taste and an idea of how scripture gets twisted and how people use it for their own good and their own gain. Um, because I think, you know, it's one thing when the world attacks us, it's another when someone's claiming the name of Jesus. That can be really confusing, can't it? You know, and I've heard anything this last year or two, people have learned, man, I was really naive. I had no idea what was being taught. I had no clue. Um, the effects. I didn't know that person would act that way. I didn't know. And there's just a lot, a lot of this. I don't know. And so what we want to do is equip the church to not be naive and be prepared when things contradict what the Bible clearly teaches. Fair, right? Okay. And I would say this too, is that uh, you don't, I'm not even asking you to trust me. What I'm saying is let's look at the text and trust the text because it's God's word. Amen. And so just give you a few principles to, to do that. Uh, and we'll move through it. So one is this. It says, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. What is that getting at? 95% of the Bible, I'm telling you this, can just be understood straightforward. Okay? You don't need a PhD, 14 lectionaries, 14 dictionaries, squint your eyes, 14 extra biblical writings. You know, there are sometimes prophecy or apocalyptic language or metaphor. But for the most part, you read it as is. That's the plain sense. Now, I know common sense has taken on a different meaning over time. But for the most part, it's like if it reads that easy, it is that easy. And what you'll see people doing is they'll try to give you four different translations with four different dictionaries. And they'll try to make a passage say what it doesn't say. And so just a principle to remember, if it makes plain sense... Seek no other sense. Use the common sense, right? Okay. Maybe a more sophisticated way to say it comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture 
is the scripture itself. But so they want to interpret the Bible with the Bible, right? Interprets itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So it's saying, is that principle, doctrine, truth upheld in other parts of the Bible? So one, use the plain sense. And then two, use your other parts of the Bible. So do things like look at a verse, look at the paragraph, look at the chapter, look at the book, look at the New Testament, look at the Old and New Testament. Is that fair? Okay. So those are some principles to understand, is that really what that says? Okay. Now, I'm going to give you a few examples. I'm going to go through fast because it's not the purpose of the sermon, but it is telling us to watch out for doctrine and contrary. And just to give you an idea how this happens. This passage happens to be a famous passage that people twist and take out of context. Okay. So let's look at verse one. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at um, Sincrea. So they would say that teaches that Phoebe is a pastor. Does the passage say that? No, that's the plain sense. Okay, look through the whole 16 verses. Is it talking about church structure? Is it talking about elders and pastors? It's a greeting and he's thanking people. Okay, so look at where does the Bible talk about elders and pastors? First Timothy, Titus, first Peter walks through, talks about men are to be elders and they're to be qualified men and they're able to teach and instruct doctrine. It's what the Bible teaches. So to use a passage about a greeting and to use a word servant, which isn't pastor elder, and then make it a doctrine would be inconsistent with the passage and the plain sense. You see that? Okay. Verse seven does something similar. Uh, Junia. It says, uh, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles. So they're trying to say, look, there's a female pastor. That doesn't say that though, does it? No, it says my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, well known to the apostles. Okay, so, and, and there's three things you got to look at too in this. One, they don't even know if Junia was a girl or boy. They don't know if well known means among or to, and they don't know if apostle means office or messenger. That's three questions just off that. Can we see that's a stretch to make a doctrine? Yeah, and then it wouldn't be consistent with 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, even, even parts of 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. Okay, so that's the plain sense, and that's Scripture interpreting Scripture. Okay? So that's an example. Next one, John 1.1. 1, 1. This, is, this is what Jehovah's Witnesses do. Okay, so they'll take, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And they'll say, the Word was a God. Little g. And then they make Jesus' divinity go away with a little g and a small a. Well, is that what John 1's getting at? What's the whole book of John getting at? The deity of Jesus. So to take one verse and do away with the whole book, that ignores the plain sense and it ignores the full context of the whole book. True? Okay. Next one. Matthew 18, 20. And this will be the last one. Just, I think this one's important. As people will read Matthew 18, 20, and it says, for where there are two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And they say that two to three people make a church. If you got two to three people, you now have a church. Is that what that verse says? No. But this is what people will say. You don't need to go to church. You seem to get two or three people together on your porch, sing some kumbaya, read a random passage, and you're good. It's not what the passage says. If you go back early in verse 17, 
it says that you need to tell it to the church. So if you're telling it to the church and you are the church, it's telling you to tell it to yourself. Right? That doesn't make any sense, does it? What's Matthew 18 getting at? Church discipline. Someone sins against you, you go to them. You say, hey, you sinned against me. They don't believe you, you get two or three people. You go and you talk and you say, hey, you sinned. That's what the Bible says. So if they ignore that counsel, you go to the elders. They ignore that counsel, you go to the church. And you tell the church, look, this person is acting like a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning a non-Christian. You need to pray for them to know Christ because they're not calling Scripture what is Scripture. They're not obeying Him. So it's telling you how to handle conflict in the midst of a church. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Those are just some examples. Why did I do that? Because that's how easy people twist Scripture, and that's how you take the principles we talked about and you apply them. Right? You watch out and you don't create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So we need to be able to look into our Bibles, look at the full context, trust the plain meaning, and interpret it with other scripture, and, and make sure we know what our Bibles say. Okay? So when it comes to not being deceived, a lot of this is going to be us knowing what does the Bible actually say. Okay? And one of the things we need to ask is, where does it say that in the Bible? Isn't that a fair question? If someone is claiming this is what God said, doesn't it make no sense to say this is what God said, but not use our Bibles? So it's an easy question. Where do you see that in the Bible? And again, I expect you to ask that of our pastors and our elders, anyone who teaches, where do you see that in the Bible? And then once they show you in the Bible, look at the full context. Does that fit with the paragraph? Does that fit with the chapter? Does that fit with the book? Does that fit what's going on? Does that fit the plain sense of what's being said? You know, are there supporting passages, other places in the Bible? And so kind of just using that as a rhythm and, and as a tool so that we can watch out and, and not get in fights or create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that's been taught. So a lot of this is going to be us doing the work of reading our Bibles and knowing what it says. And I get it. We want to listen to podcasts and we want to read books and we want to listen to smart people. But at the end of the day, we all have to give an account to the Lord for what we do and what we don't do. It's 1 Corinthians. And it'd be my heart and prayer, and, and I know I'm not going to do this, because I don't want to talk to God and say, well, the dead Johns and the alive Johns all agreed, so I just followed them. Right? God's going to say, well, you had a Bible, didn't you? Well, yes. Well, why didn't you read it? Well, because the Johns all agreed. Why would I read my Bible? Okay? It's a question you have to ask. Why did I stand on that truth? That's a fair question, isn't it? So if I'm going down, I want it to be, I actually read it and believed it, and I was really that dumb. Right? I actually did. I really read it. I studied it, and that's just where I came, and I, and I was wrong. Okay? So, so this is what it means to watch out, to know our Bibles. Okay? Another part of this, don't be deceived. There's going to be Christians who are going to flirt with the Bible, but they don't believe the Bible. Okay? And, th and that's the most dangerous, because that's where the flattering and the smooth talk comes in. They're not just going to outright deny Jesus. They're going to give you a partial truth. They're going to say things like the Bible's old, science knows better, and now culture knows better. Truth is relative. And kind of the trendy thing, if you're a cool Christian, is you deconstruct your faith, right? You get rid of all of it and you say, oh, everything I was taught was a lie. And I now realize that it's, it's no longer true. Have you guys seen this? It's really trendy to deconstruct your faith. And so essentially what they want to do is act like a three-year-old and say, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? 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 How come? Why? You guys love it when your kids do this, right? 
Okay? At some point, you shake them and say, because I said so. Right? Because at some point, you have to rest in that truth. Well, that's God's word. It says so. You can question and question and question and question, but at some point, it says what it says. Okay? But let's, let's think a little bit about deconstructing. If the point is to question everything, shouldn't we question the art of questioning everything? Think about that one, right? Okay? All of these things play a, they, they deny themselves in the face of it, trying to replace the Bible with some type of higher learning, some type of higher knowledge. And this isn't uncommon in the New Testament when Paul deals with Colossians and Galatians. It's called Gnosticism. They want to say, well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know that? Right? So the, a good question would be, how do you know that you don't know that? Right? You guys follow me? If you can't know, how do you know you don't know or can't know? Seems like you'd have to know. So it's kind of just working around these things and asking yourself, what, how do I understand things to be true? I understand them to be true because they come from the Bible. Some people might say, you know, you know what, truth is found in our empirical senses, right? Sight, taste, touch, feel, hear. That's how you know things are true. You know what the problem with that is? You can't use empirical evidence to prove that statement. You guys are looking at me weird. Think about it, right? You can't touch it. You can't smell it. You can't hear it. It's a claim. And your senses can't prove it. And so here's what I'm getting at is everyone has a worldview. And so often what happens to Christians is we get pressed down on and, and we get deceived. We feel naive. We feel like I've never thought about these things. If someone makes a truth claim, the burden of proof rests on them and it rests on us. Okay? So we can't be afraid to push back on the one trying to deceive us and say, how do you know things to be true? Where does truth come from? How do you substantiate what you're saying? Okay? Here, here's the thing. Truth has to have a starting point. Okay? The Bible is our starting point. If you lose the Bible, you lose truth. Let me put it to you this way. When, when people try to explain evolution, where do they normally start? In the middle, right? But what do we want to ask? What about the beginning? So you have matter and particles. Well, how did they get there? That's a fair question, right? They're uncaused and eternal. So they're uncaused, eternal, and they sustain themselves. That sounds like the definition of what? God, right? Okay, you have an uncaused cause. That's God. He's existed. But where does truth come from? If truth is always going to be true, that means absolute, then it has to come from someone who's perfect and knows everything. Otherwise, that truth can change based on time and change based on knowledge. That's a problem, isn't it? Absolutely. So when you think through it, the Bible is our standard from truth. It is our first cause. It is what God has revealed. We have a truth giver, God, and where did he reveal it? In his word. And so these are the kind of questions you have to ask people. Do you believe the word of God is sufficient? Do you believe it's infallible and inerrant? Do you believe it's true in all things? Because if you guys don't agree on that, how are you going to agree on the rest of your conversation? Because you're going to say, well, the Bible says this. Well, I don't believe the Bible. That's a problem in your conversation, isn't it? Okay, this is part of how we're not deceived. Is that we're standing on the Word of God, and we're not allowing people to change our position based on not the Word of God. 
not on their feelings, not on what they think is happening. We're saying the Bible says it, I believe it. Okay, here's maybe a question for you to answer. Do you believe that God can write his word in a way that it can be true forever? Is that a possibility? Okay, if that's possible, then why is the conversation always, well, science has revealed, technology has revealed, culture has revealed. God was only able to write to a specific group of people, and he couldn't really communicate until we got dictionaries, lexicons, iPhones, and and, and better, you know, Harvard and Princeton. Now God can really communicate. Sorry, guys, I couldn't get it right. I've been kind of waiting for thousands of years for technology to catch up. You see what I'm getting at? That's a silly way to think about it, isn't it? Okay, so then we can't fall victim to that. Well, yeah, the Bible doesn't address that. They didn't even have cars back then. God didn't know we'd have cars and computers. Okay, no, God knew. The principles of Scripture stand. So then, so how do we get here? Well, the Bible's clear. We have itching ears. Okay? There's this propensity in us. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 says that, that we have ears that itch and they will no longer take sound doctrine and persevere in the word as taught. So what happens is our emotions stir up in us. One of the main reasons we get to bad doctrine or we contradict what God says is we get hurt, we get pain. You lose your job, you lose your spouse, you get an addiction, someone you love dies, and all of a sudden there's a pain. And the Bible doesn't answer the question in a way that we like. So we just change God a degree, we change the Bible a degree, let it give us permission to, you know, divorce our spouse, look on the internet, feed our addiction, take out vengeance, ignore God's standards, and say, well, that makes me feel better. So pain is one of them. Here's a big driver in bad doctrine, kids. It's not the kid's fault. It's the parent's fault. Okay, I want you to think about this. Why does it seem wise to us for a nine-year-old to come home and say, I learned that God's not real and that, you know, gender is a social construct and I no longer believe the Bible. And then for us to say, okay, eight-year-old, if that's what you want to believe, that's fine. Does that seem wise to us? No, right? It's, it was, but I don't want to upset my eight-year-old, right? Because they're the source of knowledge and truth, right? And then they get older and they go to college and it's a professor and the kid comes home and says, you know, God's not real. My professor said so. He's like, oh my gosh, my 19-year-old just changed the whole Bible. I must change with it. Now, this is a little bit of an oversimplification. What's the complex? The complexity is we're afraid to lose our kids, so we just change our doctrine so our kids will love us. And then we go to church and affirm it, and then we go to, with them and we deny it. That seems like a problem, doesn't it? It's a huge problem. Don't be deceived. The Bible teaches what it teaches, and we can't be afraid uh, to stand on it. And that might mean your kids think you're crazy or unloving. You know, that's part of the problem with Christians too, is we don't want to be called mean and bigots and judgmental and angry, okay? FYI, that's how you communicate truth. That's not because you believe truth. There's a difference, right? There's a, there's a nice way to say that's what the Bible says. But there's this fear, oh man, if I, if I believe that, people will think this of me. So I'll just agree with them in their heresy and say, well, that works for you and God bless you. 
but I don't want you to call me names, so I'll let you go to hell and not say anything because it makes me sleep better at night knowing you like me, even though I'm lying to you. You guys with me on that? That's bad, isn't it? Yeah, this is, this is bad. This is deception. These are the things that deceive us. We exchange sound doctrine that's been taught for emotions and feelings and fear. I mean, sometimes it's money. There's jobs that'll make you sign that you believe this, 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 and this. And so we sign it. And it's like, but I thought you were a Christian. It's like, yeah, but I need the money, so I'd rather lie. That goes over really great, doesn't it? So, so, So these are the things that cause us to want to have obstacles to doctrine, that have divisions, that have us to go against what's been taught, to feed the appetite by smooth talk and flattery, to think to ourselves, well, if it soothes this feeling, if, if, if Jimmy thinks it's okay, my kid thinks it, I don't want them to hate me. God will forgive me. What's he telling them? Do not get lost in contrary doctrine. You've been taught, avoid that, hold fast. Those people do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Don't join them, right? Don't join them. So then he warns them, right? So what are the warnings? The warnings are, come down here in 19. He says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and as what is evil. He's saying, look, evil is going to be among you. There's going to be people that teach contrary to God's word. And I want you to be wise. And I want you to be good. And I want you to be innocent. Notice he says innocent, not ignorant. There's a difference, isn't there? Okay, so he's getting out of this. Getting, hey, Christians, you need to be wise. That means there's going to be some work for us to do this. What does the Bible actually say? And then also wise, what is the world trying to tell us? What is it teaching us? What is it teaching our kids? What is, it, what is the government saying? What, you know, what, are, what are the you know, figures of our world trying to teach us? So this is when it's very smart to have podcasts and and books, and interviews, things that people are saying, this is what's being taught in the world. That's very smart to to get an understanding of what they're trying to do, what's their agenda. What's bad is when we take that teaching and then try to read it into our Bible and change our Bible so it matches our world. That's a problem, isn't it? Okay, so we use the Bible to say, this is what I stand on. And then we use the other platforms in the world to say, this is what they're trying to say, this is what they're teaching. So we're not ignorant of what they're trying to do. So all of a sudden, we're aware of what's going on. We're aware of the deconstruction. Oh, you're going down this road. You're trying to question everything. You want me to admit I know, know anything. I already see where you're going. So it says that way you can avoid it. Because we don't need to quarrel and fight with them. They need to know Jesus. Right? Isn't that the starting point? To know Christ, to have your sins forgiven? They say you need to be wise. Don't be ignorant of what's going on. And also be innocent. Don't don't fight and be angry and jealous and gossip and bitter with these people. Know what the Bible says. Be obedient and be wise. Understand, you know, is someone being a pluralist? Meaning, are they saying, you know, all roads lead to heaven? Because there's some people that, yeah, I believe in Jesus and these 14 other gods. 
I'm fine if you believe that, but I think you can believe anything. Oh, okay, so you're not a Christian. Because Jesus says he's the only way. Right? These are questions we have to start asking ourselves. Polytheists, right? They believe in many gods. I'm not going to get on this too heavy, but just think through like critical race theory, intersectionality. We did a podcast on that. You can listen to it. I'm not going to grandstand on it, but basically what are they getting at? Standpoint epistemology. Your feelings are your way of knowledge. Your feelings ever lie to you? Yeah, if you're not, they're lying to you right now, right? Like, that's a good point that that should not be our dictator of truth, correct? Okay, it's a big problem. And what makes it worse is what they want to say is, if you're born a certain color, you get less power because your experiences are are privileged. And people who have been oppressed get more influence and they get to speak more. So they have a higher weight value on truth. And so they get to determine well, I don't think the Bible says that. Well, I don't feel like God meant that. Doesn't that sound like a terrible way to approach the Bible? Absolutely. It's not what God's word says. And our feelings do lie to us. And our feelings do let us down. And we should know God's word in light of what it actually says. And so a good quote to kind of summarize the the Christianity that I see being brought into our world. Someone said it better than me, so I'll put it up on the screen. And it's good for us to think through this. Is is a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross? Think about that. Think about that deeply. God has no wrath. He's not holy. He doesn't care when we sin. It doesn't violate his wrath. It doesn't violate his justice. He doesn't care. There's no punishment. We don't sin. We just make decisions and then people tell us it's sin. It's the construct of society that we feel guilty. There's no actual right and wrong. We're not sinful. We're good. And because of that, there's no judgment, right? You don't judge right and wrong because truth is based on your feelings and makes you happy, right? And I mean, think about this. Like if someone says, I feel like I should punch you, and this person feels like you shouldn't punch me, and this person punches them, whose who's truth won? The guy who punched you. Well, why does his truth get the win? Isn't that a problem? And when the two collide, well, there's no judgment, so we can't talk about it. And, and this is the most important one, is because there's no judgment, because there's no sin, then the cross isn't necessary. Jesus just came and he died, He didn't need to, but he just did it anyway. So that way we could see that he was a really nice guy who really, really cared about us, even though he wasn't doing anything to help us. These are all problems, aren't they? So this is why he's saying, look, you need to know these things. And the Bible's clear. There's going to be people that want to contradict what's been taught. You need to know Scripture. You need to know what it says. You need to be able to stand on it. And so you need to be wise, wise in what the world's teaching, wise in what God's word is saying. You need to keep your morality, keep your obedience. Because here's ultimately what happens is as as we begin to question doctrine, then we question morality. Well, if God really is just love and God does want me to be happy, then I can have this addiction and I can do this. I can have these bad moral choices because God's word doesn't really say that. Or I don't feel like it says that. 
And then we move from bad doctrine to bad morals. You see how the two become connected? Now, this is why Paul is writing the other part of this. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. He's saying, man, you guys be, be cognizant of bad doctrine and people trying to flatter you. And man, you guys are doing good because your obedience is maintaining. People know you're Christian by the way you act. And it's evident to all people. Okay? So here's some questions for us to ask. I'm going to put it on the screen. And you could just take a picture of it or think about it. But these are questions we need to ask Christians, right? To think about and to know, to see, are we on the same page? Are you contradicting doctrine? And these are some things, how did I come up with this list? They're things that we've seen within the book of Romans, right? So you could think, man, if someone says that, I, I know in Romans it, it addresses this, right? Jesus, fully man, fully God. We lose that, we lose the gospel, right? Does God know the future exhaustively, right? He gets into that in Romans 11 in his sovereignty. Is God all-powerful or is he limited? Is the church necessary for the Christian life? So many people, you don't need to go to church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, you don't need to go. They don't practice what they preach. They don't love. It's not Christ. It's not the New Testament. That's not what Jesus did. Where does the Bible say that? Anyways, I got to move on. Is marriage between a male and a female, now you have to say biologically, right? Is Jesus the payment for our sin necessary? Is the Bible infallible and is inerrant? Is the nature of man evil or is it good? Are heaven and hell both literal and real? Uh, and is the purpose of man to glorify God? Those are some questions we need to ask, right? And so it's just good for us to be prepared. And that's what we're trying to do as we wrap up Romans. They say, man, God's sovereign. We trust him and we want to be ready and we want to watch. We want to be wise. We want to be innocent and know what's in front of us. And then he gives us this encouragement. As maybe you're thinking, man, this is a lot of work. I got to question things. I got to dig deep in my Bible. I got to train my kids. I got to help my spouse. I got to know myself. This is the government corrupting or the people or the teachers can feel overwhelming. So Paul adds this in verse 20. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What is he saying? The war is won. Satan's been defeated. Take great hope and great courage that the war is won. Right? The Genesis 3 has been fulfilled. He crushed the head of the serpent. Christ has won. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Jesus will come back. Therefore, get to work. Be wise. Be faithful. Share. Trust the Lord. Build up the church. Play your part. Do your role. Know that your decisions don't lose the war. The war has been won. But we need to be mindful and watchful. We need to hold to sound doctrine. We need to be wise and we need to be good. These are all great encouragement, aren't they? That's why Romans is so beautiful. It just tells us, wow. And then verse 25, he says, hey, now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, and God's going to strengthen you during this time. He's going to help you not be deceived. He's going to help you be strong. He's going to help you be wise. He's going to help you. But our role is going into the text, knowing it and upholding it because that's what he gave it to us for. Okay? Let's walk through some questions uh, for us to ponder and think about. Okay, Question one, what are some scriptural truths that you know of people that are trying to twist? Okay, so, so what are some things you know people are questioning in the Bible? And how can you start studying the Bible and, and kind of start 
getting yourself ready to say, you know, that's not actually what the Bible teaches. If you look at the context of the passage, if you look at the chapter, if you look at the plain sense, right? We talked about that. Okay, so start thinking about that. How is the world around you trying to cause division in Christianity? And what's your biblical response? A lot of people saying, don't go to church. Don't trust the Bible. You know, you know, Jesus was a good guy, but he wasn't God's son. You know, what are stumbling blocks and obstacles people are putting in the church in order to try to get Christians to fight each other, deconstruct their faith? And what would your response be? Three, what are some areas in your life that if people knew about, they would question your Christianity? Why would I throw that in there? If you, if, you, if you look at verse 19, it's very important. It says, for your obedience is known to all, and I rejoice over you. Often our obedience will be our currency to share Christ with others. There are many people that say, I will never listen to that Christian because my morality is better than theirs. I don't need their Jesus and I don't need their Bible. I'm doing just fine. You ever heard that? Yeah. That's not going to get them a get out of jail free card. And, and that's sad. But for a large part, we have to understand our obedience is our currency to non-Christians to say like, no, you need the hope of Christ. You need God's word. You need the forgiveness of sins. And they're like, yeah, I can tell you live a different life. You are a different person. You're not angry and bitter. You're not in addiction. You're not a gossip, a slanderer. You, you know, you, you are completely different. And so if you're to look in your life, what's something maybe you need to work on so that your obedience can be a true currency to take the gospel to those who don't know it? Question four, how can you make sure that you don't become a naive Christian? Look here, I get it. We all start somewhere. There's, there's no shame on that. The shame is if we start naive and stay naive. Right? The Bible tells us that we're to be presented mature in Christ. That's Colossians 1. Ephesians 4, we're to equip the saints. We're to move from milk to meat. And so how can you be you know, deliberate and growing in your faith and not naive? That should be a good goal for us, right? To know what the scriptures say so we can defend the faith, love Christ, uphold his nature, his deity, right? his word. Five, how can the book of Romans be a tool uh, you use in the future to help your faith? While it's fresh on your mind, it'd be good to write down verses that you know will help. And you can go through it and just look and be, oh, wow, that addresses this, that addresses this, that addresses this. And that's a way of helping you not become naive. And the book of Romans is so cool that it covers so much of what we're going through now. So much of what we're going through now. And so that'd be my encouragement that this book would be a great tool um, to our church as we move forward uh, in our crazy world. And the last thing I'll say is this, is that the book of Romans, if anything, is designed to give us great comfort that we have a sovereign God. Right? He will make all things right. He keeps his promises. He's the potter, we're the clay. We don't need to worry. We need to trust him and be obedient and wait for his arrival. We don't need to worry or have anxiety. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for the book of Romans, that it speaks to our hearts, it speaks to our culture, it speaks to our situations. Uh, it's our prayer that we would trust you, uh, that we would trust your word, we would uphold your word, that we wouldn't be deceived, that we wouldn't be naive, um, that our obedience would be a witness to your greatness and your goodness. And it's our deep prayer that you would move in our hearts as we go to a time of worship, that we would praise you and love you for your faithfulness. 
that we would fall more in love with you, seeing how you've been faithful from the beginning. You keep your promises. You are a good father that loves his children, who walks with his children. He never leaves. He never forsakes. His love is always present. And so we pray, we just praise you for those truths we find. And we would love you and enjoy you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.